Every day of our lives is spent in the built environment. We live in homes and apartments, drive on roads, get gas from pipelines, go to work in buildings, make purchases in stores and restaurants. We rely on factories, plants, doctor's offices, and hospitals for our basic human needs. And while our world continues to shift and grow and change, the development and delivery of the built environment has fallen dramatically behind. Welcome to a special mini-series of the Built Revolution podcast. We are engaging with leaders and experts to discuss how the energy transition, renewables, technology, and ESG are changing the way we build. This podcast is brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. Hello, this is Elliot Smith, Global Vice President with Victolix Power Business, and I'll be hosting this discussion. My background includes over 30 years in the power and clean energy industries with a mix of engineering, EPC, and major OEM experience with companies such as Siemens, ABB, and CH2M. With me today is Uday Taraga, the founder and CEO of ADI Analytics, a consulting and research firm based in Houston, Texas, specializing in oil and gas, energy, chemicals, and industrials. Uday has a PhD in fuel science from Penn State and an MBA from UT Austin. He's published over 100 papers and has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, National Public Radio, and Bloomberg. Thank you for joining us today, Uday. I want to jump in with a high-level question. ADI, ADI Analytics is well-known in the industry, consulting with companies spanning a variety of energy-focused sectors. In your opinion, where do you see the market heading as it relates to energy transition? Thanks for having me, Elliot. Uh, it's a pleasure to join you here today. Um, that's, a, that's a great question. Our uh, team at ADI Analytics has just published uh, our energy transition outlook for uh, 2022. So I'm just going to piggyback off uh, some, of, some good work uh, from my colleagues here to uh, address that question. Uh, so at a high level, right, I mean, I think we see um, uh, five big themes, right? Um, number one, I think there's um, a very broad consensus now around the need for energy transition. Um, and we define energy transition um, fairly loosely and, and broadly. For us, what that means is um, moving our global energy mix towards uh, low and zero carbon uh, energy resources over uh, the next uh, 20, 30 years. Uh, and uh, a lot of that is in support of broader uh, climate change goals. For example, keeping um, the global warming temperatures down to um, one and a half degrees uh, C, uh, for example. Um, and, and a great example of this uh, broad consensus around the energy transition that we see was in the news today. Uh, ExxonMobil uh, today announced its commitment to cut uh, emissions at all of its uh, oil and gas operations to net zero by uh, 2050. Um, obviously, a few of the other oil and gas majors, uh, for example, Shell and BP, have made similar announcements over the last year, year and a half. Uh, but ExxonMobil's uh, also uh, joining them to, to make this commitment, and, and that kind of points towards this broad consensus that we see around um, energy transition and, and the need for uh, energy transition. Uh, uh, another, another example around this consensus is how, if, if you uh, go back a couple of months, you'll remember that the general commentary around uh, the progress that was made in COP26 was um, uh, you know, relatively 
uh, un unsatisfactory in, in the sense that uh, the, the broader punditry felt that uh, the, the the accomplishments that were the progress that was made at COP26 was uh, underwhelming and and that a lot more uh, could have been done. Um, we ourselves see COP26 more as a glass half full uh, and and with more optimism. Uh, while I think a lot more could have been accomplished, uh, what was accomplished was not trivial or insignificant and actually positions the world fairly well uh, if all the countries follow through on their commitments to get to fairly considerable progress uh, towards broader global warming uh, goals. So, so that broad consensus around the need for energy transition is, is one of the big themes uh, that we see in the market. A second theme is that capital has uh, started flowing in fairly substantive fashion towards energy transition. Um, if we look at capital spending on energy transition projects uh, in 2021, that was close to $550 billion. Uh, while most of that is dominated by uh, renewable power projects, we are seeing a lot of progress in a number of other uh, topics and areas, carbon capture and storage, for example, energy storage, um, mobility, um, renewable fuels, uh, uh, and of course, uh, hydrogen, uh, and, and more broadly, uh, renewable power. Um, so that um, uh, growth in investment, that, that, that growth in capital investment that we are seeing towards energy transition projects is only going to intensify, and, and we see that as, as a big theme. Uh, third, um, while it's great that capital is flowing, uh, energy transition is going to be expensive, very, very expensive, and I think that uh, needs to be understood. Um, ADI uh, did some work for uh, a client. We did a consulting project for a client uh, about six months back where we uh, tallied up and forecasted what energy transition spending would uh, have to occur over the next 30 years to meet uh, different kinds of energy transition scenarios, whether it's a, a one degree C increase or a one and a half degree uh, C increase. Uh, but at a high level, we estimated something like 30 to $45 trillion in cumulative capital spending that will have to occur over the next 30 years in order to achieve uh, those energy transition scenarios. So, so clearly there's gonna be a lot of capital that uh, has uh, to be uh, deployed. Uh, and, and the reason that we need this kind of investment is because a lot of uh, energy transition technologies, when you look at it individually, are, are, are very, very expensive. Um, uh, uh, you know, as, as, as an example, if you, took, if you take a look at uh, gasoline today, you, know, gasoline, you, you can buy a gallon of gasoline at about a couple bucks here in Houston today. But if you were to go get the same amount of energy uh, equivalent in, in, in say, hydrogen, um, you are essentially looking at spending something uh, like four to six dollars a gallon. So, so uh, essentially, alternatives to uh, incumbent fossil fuel-based uh, uh, energy products are very expensive, and it's going to take a while to kind of bring those costs down. And, and that's the reason why the amount of investment that's required to achieve this energy transition is going to be pretty expensive. The good news, though, and that's our fourth theme, is that there's a lot of innovation underway uh, in some work that we did for a venture capital investor uh, late last year. 
we inventoried all the energy transition startups that are active uh, in about uh, eight different areas, solar, wind, nuclear, geothermal, electric vehicles, hydrogen, energy storage, and digital. And we came up with uh, a list of 700 plus uh, startups that are active in the space and have uh, an, uh, at least received Series A funding. And, and we see very interesting uh, technologies that are being commercialized out there, which tells us that uh, there's a lot of innovation that's underway that's going to kind of chip away towards uh, at, at these uh, challenging cost structures that we see for uh, energy transition. And the last theme is that we don't see oil and gas as being done yet uh, any time in the, in the near future. In fact, all the projections that we have around energy transition scenarios tell us that uh, oil will continue to account for about um, uh, 10 to 15% of the global energy mix in 2030, even in an aggressive energy transition scenario. Gas actually will have a much bigger share at about 20% or so. Uh, now, what, what, what we do expect to happen in oil and gas is that the industry will have to invest in improving its relative sustainability competitiveness over the next 10, 15 years. Examples of this are including fugitive, are, are cutting down on fugitive emissions, um, improving the uh, in the role of digital technologies that will allow them to make uh, their sustainability footprint more competitive as well as their operations. Uh, more competitive, investing in carbon capture and storage technology. So all of this will have to be done in order to reduce its greenhouse gas footprint and improve its overall sustainability competitiveness if, um, you know, oil and gas uh, could, uh, are, are to have uh, a competitive role in, in the energy mix uh, over the next uh, 30 years or so. So, so at a high level, uh, Elliot, that is what we see as the five big themes in and around uh, energy transition today. Great, Uday. Uh, wonderful insights, and we appreciate you sharing those. Um, yeah, we're talking about a 30-year window, right? Some is 10 years, some are less, uh, but we have a, a, a long way to go, and we're all just getting started in this journey. So let's just dive a little bit deeper. Can you talk about energy transition at the regional and market level? Yeah, sure. So I think, so let's um, uh, take that one by one, right? So let's talk about it at a regional level, right? So before we kind of get into the individual regions and kind of think about what's happening in, with energy transition, I think we should recognize a couple of big uh, themes, right? Number one, the traditional geopolitics that has uh, been a central theme of energy markets over the last 30, 40, 50 years uh, is... Uh, probably not going to be relevant going forward, right? If you think about energy transition and you think about um, the fact that, uh, you know, you, you are essentially electrifying a significant chunk of the global economy, uh, you're no longer going to be dependent on uh, one particular region or a set of countries in order to secure your energy resources. You're going to be dependent uh, more likely on uh, local or regional uh, power generation uh, capacity and, and especially power generating capacity that is clean and, and has uh, lower or zero carbon emissions. So in, in that sense, the traditional model of looking at energy geopolitics uh, is to a large extent not going to be relevant. Now, of course, 
there are other uh, drivers that that uh, become important, right? Which is uh, if you think of um, uh, batteries, for example, as a way uh, to significantly change uh, the way we fuel, uh, the way we supply energy in, into our mobility needs. Uh, you're going to have dependence on a small set of critical minerals that today come from a very small set of countries. In fact, you could argue that they come from uh, a smaller set of countries than uh, how the world sources, than from, from the mix of countries that the world sources its oil and gas supplies from today. So in, in that sense, the supply chains are going to have uh, significant changes. Um, another big thing that we see in um, regional trends is that uh, energy markets, both on the demand side and the supply side, are going to get very fragmented. Um, what we mean by that is if you look at energy demand growth over the last 30, 40 years, the bulk of that demand growth has come from a small set of countries, um, China, India, Brazil, um, some of these emerging markets. Uh, going forward, though, we expect energy demand growth to occur from a larger set of countries, you know, countries in Southeast Asia, Africa, Latin America. They might individually or even collectively not account for the big demand growth jumps that we saw coming from economic progress, for example, in China or India through the 90s and the 2000s. But um, uh, they will uh, collectively ha have a pretty big impact. And, and if you're in the energy business, those are the markets that you're going to go chase. So in other words, you are going to be competing uh, to... Um, for, for growth in energy markets uh, across a larger number of countries. And, and that's something that will have a big uh, role to play in, in terms of how energy transition evolves around each of these uh, regions. Uh, now, having said that, we do believe that every region will have its own niche uh, and identifying what that niche is, identifying what is the comparative advantage that a region might have in energy markets is, is going to be critical. But uh, so, so you know, at, at a high level, that's how we think of regional markets. But if I were to run down quickly, um, North America, obviously, uh, you know, the role um, of energy storage, um, its uh, position as a source of innovation in the global energy mix. And then finally, its continued dominance of the natural gas market and to what extent does natural gas serve as a bridge fuel towards energy transition Will, will be very critical. Uh, of course, uh, there's big uh, regulatory um, uh, momentum that is likely to build up in favor of clean energy, in favor of renewable power, uh, that will also have a big role uh, to play in North America. Uh, Europe um, has an advantage in terms of the appropriate regulatory framework and incentives to drive energy transition. Uh, to what extent can they um, move towards a more uh, competitive uh, energy market uh, by leveraging uh, investments in new technologies. I think I think that's uh, where we'll see a lot of activity in, in Europe. Uh, in terms of energy transition, the big questions that uh, we have around Asia Pacific are more around how quickly can they phase out coal-fired power, to what extent will they replace that with renewable power versus let's say, uh, natural gas-based uh, power generation, at least as a bridge towards energy transition. Um, Africa and Latin America obviously uh, are, 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 are need to invest a little bit more and, and 
Uh, they are further behind relative to some of the other regions, but we do anticipate uh, significant growth there, although, as, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of that is going to be uh, fragmented. So at least uh, at a high level, you know, that's how we think about uh, regional markets. Um, I, I know this is going long, but let me quickly cover how do how uh, you know how how we think about energy transition uh, from a market point of view, right? I mean, I, I, at a high level, I think we see five attractive markets, right? Carbon capture and storage, uh, renewable fuels, um, hydrogen, energy storage, and uh, renewable power. Um, some of these markets are fairly mature. Renewable power, I think, is fairly mature. We, I mean, in, in the sense that it has a very competitive cost structure. Uh, there's a lot of experience that the industry has that can be leveraged to kind of further grow uh, the market. Um, now, of course, uh, the past year or two, there have been significant challenges with supply chain. Um, there's also concern that uh, cost uh, innovation is kind of stagnating in, in renewable power markets. So to what extent can we continue to see further cost reductions is, is something that will be interesting to see. Um, renewable fuels, renewable natural gas, renewable diesel, for example, are in the money today, but primarily because of uh, incentives uh, through regulations, to what extent can they get more competitive going forward as new capacity comes on stream, and to what extent can they find feedstocks to produce these renewable fuels are, are key challenges. Um, hydrogen, we are seeing a lot of momentum, a lot of investment in new technology, but costs continue to be high, and further innovation is, is going to be critical. I think energy storage is further along. Um, what would be interesting is to what extent can countries build um, the supply chain and uh, battery manufacturing and battery recycling capacity that allow for a circular economy, that allow for some insulation from global supply chains are, are going to be big questions. And then finally, carbon capture and storage. That's going to be critical for the traditional fossil fuel-based industries to compete. And while momentum is growing, costs continue to be very high. And that's some of the challenges that we see in CCS. Excellent uh, and thorough overview, Uday. Thank you for that. And then you mentioned carbon capture and storage. And of course, we have utilization as well, which I think is going to be very important in terms of monetizing some of that CO2 captured. But uh, like, like with renewables, successful long-term growth in all of these areas is going to require a combination of technology innovation and scaling up, right? So it's going to take some time for it all to uh, kind of shake out. So uh, we'll continue, all of us, of course, watching as things uh, emerge, converge, and uh, the transition continues. So what would you say are some of the projects to, to watch out uh, or watch over for the next few years? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, lots of interesting projects uh, out there, many of which are underway, and, and uh, I think a lot of us are watching these projects very closely to see how um, energy transition, at least through the lens of these projects, comes to pass, right? Um, uh, so, so obviously the NEOM uh, project with air products and aqua power uh, in Saudi Arabia is, is probably one of the most uh, um, uh, carefully watched projects out there. Um, it's a $5 billion project where they are trying to um, essentially build a green hydrogen plant and then uh, sell that hydrogen in the form of ammonia to global markets um, starting 2025. Um, that's, the, you know, that's, that's obviously a very important project. 
um, Australia is building um, uh, you know a large solar and, and wind farm. They uh, it, it's most likely going to be the world's largest solar and, and wind farm in, in Western. Then uh, they're building it in, in uh, Western Australia. Um, it's backed uh, by Macquarie, um, Vestas, uh, and, and a couple of other players. Uh, and, and this uh, Asian Renewable Energy Hub uh, is, is going to be fairly important. The whole idea is to kind of uh, take uh, uh, solar and, and wind power, convert that into hydrogen, and essentially emerge. Even in, in Australia essentially wants to emerge as, as a major exporter of hydrogen to global markets. Uh, it's, uh, it's pegged at about $35 uh, billion in CapEx, so it's, it's uh, a pretty massive uh, project that's uh, coming up there. Um, a third project that uh, I am watching very closely is uh, close to home here in Houston, uh, which is the uh, CCS hub, the Carbon Capture and Storage uh, Hub uh, on the Gulf Coast here in Houston. Um, Exxon's uh, leading this, although a number of other companies uh, have have also uh, uh, expressed willingness to support this uh, hub. But uh, if if this project comes to fruition, it gives an opportunity for um, the extensive uh, process industry, the oil and gas process industry that's here in Houston to uh, essentially. Uh, reduce their carbon footprint by capturing and, and storing uh, CO2. Uh, the, the significant promise here, because um, this uh, the Gulf of Mexico region uh, can potentially store as much as 500 billion tons of CO2 uh, based on some estimates from uh, the U.S. Uh, Department of Energy. So, so that's the third project that that we are looking at. But you know, we these all of all of these uh, the three projects that I mentioned are all fairly large, uh, highly capital intensive projects. Uh, but that's we, we we are tracking a number of other projects as well. And and one that um, is very interesting and was in news recently is uh, Monolith Materials uh, uh, Natural Gas Pyrolysis Plant in in uh, Nebraska. They um, are essentially taking natural gas and pyrolyzing it into hydrogen and carbon black. Um, and the uh, U.S. Department of Energy recently gave them a billion, a one billion dollar um, loan guarantee uh, for for that project. And and that's that's another technology that's kind of heading towards commercialization and and is fairly uh, interesting. Finally, the last set of projects that we are watching is electrolyzer-based projects in China and India. Um, there's been significant investment that has been made in alkaline electrolyzers. China is a leader in alkaline electrolyzer technology, and a lot of those projects are being commercialized. These are very small uh, uh, capacity units, but they are being commercialized in different parts of China and Asia, and it will be interesting to see uh, to what extent can uh, these electrolyzer-based projects produce hydrogen for different applications? Um, so I, I think those are five uh, projects or types of projects that, that we um, are, are watching very carefully. Great, dude. I appreciate that. And I know we're uh, running out of time here. So before we wrap up, I know you have an event coming up next month. Do you want to share a little bit about the ADI forum? 
Yeah, uh, thanks, uh, Lita. I appreciate uh, that opportunity to plug. Uh, we, we organize um, an annual uh, energy conference. It's called the ADI Forum. Uh, this will be the uh, fifth time we're organizing that. It'll be here in Houston on February 24th. Uh, it's a one-day event. The idea is to uh, facilitate a strategic conversation on, on issues across the oil and gas uh, value chain. So we ex we we've recruited about 20 great speakers, um, and we'll have about seven panel sessions that go that follow uh, the oil and gas and energy uh, value chain. So we'll have a panel session on upstream, midstream, downstream. Uh, and just given the broad interest, we're going to have panel sessions on energy transition, innovation, um, and, and then, of course, uh, natural gas and LNG uh, markets. Um, you, you can learn more and, and register for the conference at the website, which is uh, adi-forum.com. Outstanding. And we're really excited about attending the forum today, and we'll, we'll see you there. Uh, to, to, to wrap things up, again, this is Elliot Smith with Victolic, and we want to thank our guest, Uday Taraga, founder and CEO of ADI Analytics, uh, for sharing these uh, solid insights with us today. Thank you very much, Uday. Thank you, Elliot. Thanks for listening to the Built Revolution pod, brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. Continue the conversation on Twitter at Built Revolution Pod or email us at hello at builtrevolutionpod.com. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals being interviewed, and they do not necessarily reflect the views of the sponsoring organizations.